And we took a few breaks here and there, Easter being one of them. And so the reason why at verse 17 of chapter 7 is because that's where we're supposed to be this morning. So in light of that, I just thought that would be helpful to you. I'm going to read verse 17 to verse 24, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his, as always, much needed help and blessing on our time. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, in other words, in light of what's been said in those first 16 verses of chapter 7, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers and sisters, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Amen. Speed of God for his word. Let's, let's bow together, please. All men and women are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Well, Father, we thank you for the high privilege of public worship. Thank you that we are able to sing to you these precious songs from our heart and spirit and in truth. And as we come now to this given moment in which your Bible is open and taught, do for us now, please, what we could never do for ourselves. And make this book, make these verses live in us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. Make this book live in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. As soon as anyone, no matter who they may be, on any level would attempt to commercialize Christianity, then you no longer have authentic, cross-centered, blood-spilled Christianity. We take it for granted that it's only been within a generation and a half that most things in Christianity now have a price tag. Christianity went for years and years and years, centuries and centuries and centuries, not doing what many so find themselves doing today. And part of the reason why one could be very successful in the commercialization of Christianity at this or any point in history would be due to one's lack of contentment. Due to one's, if you like, discontentment, their unhappiness, their frustration with our station and situation in life. A situation and station which Paul writes to us and writes to the Corinthian church and tells us God himself has placed us in. Because the bent of these verses, and I'm sure you picked this up when I read through it, The bent of these verses is essentially this. Do not be in such a hurry to change the external circumstances in your life which God himself put you in. That's the bent of these verses. Don't be in such a hurry to change external circumstances which God himself has put you in. Uh, There is a book, The Progress Paradox, written by uh, Greg Easterbrook. And the subtitle is, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. 
And the whole bent of the book is that life gets better and better. For some reason, people are feeling worse and worse. It was Simon Magus in Acts chapter 18, and you should read this story for yourself, who thought of himself as a very important man, and he saw that Peter and John had some extra gifts, uh, apostolic gifts. He was so covetous of what those gifts and graces were that he offered Peter and John money for that ability. Give me that ability, Simon says, so I can do what you do. Okay, and so what was Peter's response? Well, this is terrific. If you can wait about two months, we're going to have a book coming out and a CD coming out and a DVD coming out and an MP3 coming out. And follow me on Twitter for the big announcement of the Spirit-Filled calendar and the Spirit-Filled exercise program to be released for three easy payments of $29.99. And you can have that kind of power too. Now, does Peter do anything like that? No, he doesn't. But this is what Peter does do. This is a J.B. Phillips translation of these verses. J.B. Phillips, to heck with you and your money. Actually, he says, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? You could have no share or place in this ministry, for your heart is not honest before God. For I can see inside you, and I see a bitter man filled with jealousy and bound with his own sin. In other words, you are full of covetousness and discontentment in your station and in your situation in life. Now, this is what we need to understand. Simon thought he could buy grace. Simon thought he could buy grace and buy, therefore, contentment. You see that? So tell me that is not a potential preoccupation with our commercialized age when almost everything of God has to have a price tag with it. Which is why I love the church. We don't do that here, by and large. One person arrogant enough to think that they can sell it And the other person discontent enough to think that they need it. Which is why one can be so preoccupied with what God is not pleased to give us. Which is why one can be so easily, terribly preoccupied thinking that I must know exactly what God is doing. Exactly what my plan or his plan for my future is on this earth beyond what assurances he has given us in his word. Which is why we could have thankless prayers and a thankless life. Being so frustrated, if the tiniest nano thing doesn't go exactly the way we like it, then thinking ourselves so unloved because we think as we're equal with God, which means we have to call our own shots, expressing a complete dissatisfaction with God's providence, which has placed us in our station and situation in life. Why are those things so? I can tell you in part a total and complete lack of contentment. This is a wonderful definition of Christian contentment. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Christ Alone, believe it or not, he says this. Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than belonging to God. In other words, being a Christian, because as far as I know, there's nothing past being a Christian. Is there? Is there some promotional thing that I haven't heard of? I mean, tell me, right? Tell me. This is Christian contentment. The direct fruit of having no higher ambition than belonging to God be totally at his disposal and the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. You see, contentment is, is to trust God's wise providing, placing, and timing because discontentment is both the fruit and the evidence, as in the case of Simon Magus, of an ungodly life. You cannot buy contentment. You cannot save up for it. 
you can't think that if you fix all your external situations and circumstances, then you'll finally have contentment. You will not. You will not. So keeping all that in mind, those of you who have been thinking through um, 1 Corinthians with us Sunday by Sunday, you'll remember that the context that Paul writes to in Corinth is one of absolute disorder and absolute instability. They were very zealous, yes, but they were so easily buffeted. The first thing that came along that seemed better or felt better than Jesus, boom, off to that. And so this was true in their understanding of the gospel, their understanding of Christian leadership, their understanding of spiritual giftedness, and as we've been learning in relation to marriage and singleness and sex and that dreadful prospect of divorce, they were horribly confused. So then having no good grasp of the basic matters of the faith, right? They were blown away by the temporal and that which sounded good and pleased the flesh. And that's what happened. And so Paul is a pastor. He has pastoral concern, chiefly that he would present them mature in Jesus Christ. And because of this, in these verses, he issues a call for Christian contentment, which again is the whole bent of these eight verses before us this morning. So if your Bible's open, look at verse 17. Having already written about different marital circumstances and what to do in them, Paul writes, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him. And what Paul seems to be doing is confronting the idea that if only I could change my circumstances, then everything in my life would be terrific. If only I could change all the external factors in my life, then everything would fall into place. But what he's about to say in these eight verses is that the real and necessary change for the Christian has already taken place at your conversion, internal, a change of outlook, and not external, a change of environment. Now this isn't a new thought for Paul. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, warning the people not to place all their hope in gold, but in God, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? Food, clothes, you can be content in that. Which is why the vast majority of those in our world who have everything that would be representative of freedom, of movement, of security in our culture, cannot tell you they are content. Husbands leaving beautiful wives for other ladies, and vice versa. Parents having outstanding children, yet pushing them to the breaking point. The combative nature of who's got the best kids, who has the best marriage, who has the best car, who has the best house, who has the best life, who takes the best vacations. J.C. Ryle, a long time ago, wrote this. Two things are said to be very rare sights in the world. One is a young man humble, and the other an old man content. And the fact is, then as Christians, we have no right to point our fingers at the world. When Paul addresses Timothy, he's addressing Timothy as a pastor. When he addresses the Corinthian church, he's addressing believers. Because the issue of Christian contentment in the economy of God is absolutely vital. And while the Christians should excel at this, by and large, the average Christian in the average church, I would suggest to you, does not stand out in our cultural culture as a model of contentment. Indeed, reading about them or spending time with them may be one of the most miserable experiences in our life. We just pay attention to what they write in their conversations. Always discontent, always groaning. We, we do not have the right political system. This is too high. This is too hot. This is too cold. If only I could change that. If only she did this. If only I had a few more of those. 
If only the kids, the husband, the church, whatever. If only I could change all my external circumstances just the way I like, then finally I would be content. Or so they believe. Loved ones, in a fallen body, in a fallen world, that can't happen that way. So what Paul does then is he lays down a principle. And that's our first point, the principle he establishes. And what he does in establishing this principle is taking our view of life, anything that would cause discontentment or tension, and he begins to apply this principle. And as I said, three times in eight verses, he says the same thing over and over again. Verse 17, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him. Verse 20, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. In other words, at your conversion, stay in that framework. Verse 24, Paul wraps up his argument by saying again, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, all three of these verses are written in what is called the present imperative, which simply means that it is imperative that we live that way right now. It's written in the emphatic. Do your duty, grow where you're planted. Verse 17, the Greek word is peripateo. Walk in the framework wherein you were converted. Verse 20, klesis is the Greek word. You were summoned by God. In that situation, stay. Verse 24, klesis. Again, abide in that situation to which God called you to. Okay, well, what does all that mean? Because I'm not sure if I really like that. Well, it means at least two things. One, it suddenly takes all the wind out of all those so-called higher living, higher experience, I can fix everything in your life that rattles you, that disappoints you, that leaves you feeling like you deserve far, far better. It leaves all that kind of preaching and just says, it's gone. It's foolishness. That's the one thing. The other thing that it does is he's speaking to a people that are continuously restless. A restless people who can't decide anything, who are inherently discontent. Okay, should I be married or should I not be married? Should I stay single or not stay single? Uh, should I stay with them or not stay with them? And so Paul writes in those first 16 verses what to do. Because we learned in the past the idea was floating around in Corinth. A singleness is ideal. Marriage is not so ideal. And Paul says, no, you better think this out. And of course, the other end of this was, okay, your husband's an unbeliever. Well, get out of that as fast as you can. Paul says, no, think that out. But the principle is not only in marriage, we're going to find it's in employment and also in social relationships as we move through the text. Now, proper interpretation reminds me to tell you this, that Paul is not telling the believers to stay in an occupation or stay in a situation which is clearly illegal or immoral, okay? The Bible would never contradict itself. Jesus would never give in the the green light for sin because everything which is sinful must be forsaken, right? Right? And so because everything that is sinful must be forsaken, if one has an occupation which was sinful, illegal, or immoral, or if one was in a situation which was sinful, illegal, or immoral, so for example, prostitution, or living together but not in the framework of marriage, Paul is not telling them to stay in that situation. Which is why context matters, which is why verse by verse matters so much, and chapter by chapter preaching matters so much. 
However, what Paul is telling them is the key to making your present situation count is to let God change you daily right where he has placed you. As you were called, so you remain. So again, he's calling a restless people to learn how to submit to the station and situation God has saved them in. In a phrase, Paul is simply saying, be a Christian where you are. Be a Christian where you are. Now let's just think about the context again. Very wealthy people, very wealthy context. They can get in and out as much as they like. Be content where you are. Grow where you're planted. Do not be on the constant search for right circumstances that you think will bring you happiness. Be content wherever you are. So what Paul does then so that we can understand this, he gives essentially three crucial truths. And here they are. Number one, God is sovereign in his assignments. That's verse 17 again. Nevertheless, you'll see this if your Bible's open, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him. So God is providentially overruling every situation and every station in our life. The place of our employment, our disposition, our background, who and what we are and what we're doing today. I mean, read your Old Testament. One of the things I like about the Old Testament is you have a bunch of hurly-burly people doing just about everything wrong. And yet the purposes of God are still being worked out. Right? Perfectly. Just the way God planned. And this is such a very, very important principle, especially since we live in a transitory society, in a wealthy society, the temptation would be to jump ship for another port at the slightest sign of discontentment. So it's another job, another place, another office, another wife, another city, another husband, another relationship. And Paul says, listen, God is sovereign. He has assigned to you your station and situation in life. Retain that place. Which is why subjective Christianity is so dangerous. Now hear me. Because you or I could rebel against this principle by simply saying, it's okay. I can do X because God told me, showed me, spoke to me, revealed to me. It's burning in my heart. And some of us may be so clever enough to hide our rebellion by dressing it up with all the God talk. Secondly, Paul says... That while the assignment that the Lord gives may differ, the call of God is one and the same. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Verse 17, at the end, keep your place and to which God has called him. So the call of God into his kingdom, it comes from different places through different circumstances, yes. But the call of salvation is exactly the same for every Christian. We all have the same privileges. We all have the same responsibilities. We all have the same powers. We all have it. When? As soon as you are converted. That's what makes Christianity so wonderful. Thirdly, Paul tells them that it's not only at that church in Corinth where these things are true, but you see at the end there, this is the rule I laid down in all the churches. So it's true in Cohasset. It's true in Boston. It's true in Zimbabwe. It's true in Mozambique. Name the place. It's true there. So that's the principle that Paul establishes. Grow where you're planted. Then at second point, the example that he gives. So for in order for us to understand this and his readers as well, he gives two illustrations and then he makes applications of those illustrations. And when he does this, the examples that he gives, uh, he doesn't play it safe. These in that day would have been two hot button issues, circumcision 
and slavery, right? Verse 18, circumcision would have represented the um, biggest religious barrier of that day. Verse 21, slavery would have been representative of the biggest social barrier of that day. And I think you'll see that Paul's approach is absolutely radical. And what he's doing in essence, he's putting the gospel first in everything. Okay? So his approach is very radical. Look at what he says concerning circumcision in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. In other words, who cares? Because of the victory at Christ on the cross, circumcision doesn't matter anymore. It did matter, but now it doesn't. Now to us, I understand that it doesn't have the same impact as it would to them. But if you were there in that day, in that setting, you would have been blown away by what Paul said. Because to the Christian Jew and to the Gentile Christian, circumcision was a huge, huge deal. And it was dividing believers. Let me tell you a couple of ways it was. One, history tells us that around this time, many Jewish men who had become Christians would try to essentially become uncircumcised. So that when they walked into a Roman bathhouse and they walked into a a Roman gymnasium, they walked in naked. Think about that for a minute or two, but only for a minute or two, right? They'd walk in naked and everyone would see. And apparently there was a medical procedure, epispatics, that made the circumcised male appear uncircumcised. And, And this was becoming such a trend that there was a large amount of rabbinic instruction addressing this as a problem. Right? So guys were just trending with this stuff. I mean, it's a good thing people do not succumb to peer pressure anymore, right? On the other end of that situation, there were Jewish Christians who were attempting to make Gentiles submit to circumcision, saying this, listen, if you really want to be a super-duper Christian, if you really want to do this right, you want the full blessing, then you're going to have to get circumcised. Jesus was a Jew, and you could be one too. And Paul addresses both groups and says, that is nonsense. That does not matter. Retain the place that in life God has assigned to you. If you have a Jewish background, then thank God and continue on. If you have a Gentile background, then thank God and continue on. Ritual means nothing. External stuff means nothing. And that's why Paul finishes out verse 19. Both are nothing. But keeping God's commands, that's what counts. In other words, again, your external circumstances is not the real issue. But what is the issue is that you've become a new person in Jesus Christ. And the evidence of being a new person is that you keep the commands of God. You don't keep them perfectly. We understand that. But you're on that bent. Jesus said it very plainly. If a person loves me, they'll keep my commands. Therefore, and again, please listen carefully. The enormous social barriers that stood between these two groups in that church were not going to be removed by external human activity on the part of either one. Oh, come on. You've got to decide. Either everybody's going to be circumcised or not. We've got to do this. Which one is it? It wasn't going to be settled that way. But they would be settled and that barrier would be removed by the transforming power of God in the gospel. That's why Paul says what he says again in verse 19. This does not matter. Does it matter? Now you take that principle and you apply it to the 21st century American church. God is able to overcome all barriers, social, economic, political, race, intellectual age. All barriers as he works in the heart of men and women through what? Through the gospel. And loved ones, he doesn't need our help 
to do this. In other words, and, and again, listen carefully, God does not need white people to try to make themselves black. He doesn't need black people to try to make themselves white. He doesn't need Hispanic to make themselves Caucasian or Caucasian Hispanic. And God doesn't need Christians to play dress up so that we might, quote, fit in with whatever group we want to fit in with. These new believers in Corinth were being so easily swayed by the so-called mature Christians with huge egos... So they essentially allowed their Christian walk to be guided by these people and what they wanted by way of practice, by behavior, by dress, by culture, by words, ways of speaking, ways of behaving. What they wanted, they would try to impinge on the greater church. And Paul says, that is not Jesus. That has no truth in it at all. And he says, be what you are. When you were called. God does not desire the removal of the amazing social and ethnic differences. In which he established by his sovereign will. For the unfolding of his sovereign purposes. However what God does desire is equality. And justice. He does want proper respect. Please hear me. And civility and humility towards all people everywhere. God does want that. And it's a dead end street. To try in some external way to bring people together. So it wasn't too long ago people were saying, let's, let's just do this. Let's get all the moral Jews. And let's get all the moral Christians. And let's get all the moral Muslims. And let's get all the moral Mormons. And get together and we can bring peace in our world and unity in our world. Fat chance. The Jew couldn't do it by removing the marks of his heritage. The Gentile couldn't do it by taking on the marks of the covenant. But God would do it. And God has done it through the gospel, through the cross. Ephesians 2.19. Please read it for homework. Says Jesus at the cross, he has removed uh, barriers between Jew and Gentile, between black or white, rich, poor, hip, people like me, whatever. God has done it by changing the heart of men and women which truly belong to him. And he starts in the inside. He starts and works in the inside. Because the outside, the externals, the circumstances, by and large, do not matter. Do not matter. And again, this is not done by committee, but by the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel in evangelism. And this is not done by only concentrating on a certain group of people, but all people. And that's why it's only in the church. And if you're thinking, this is good news, isn't it? It's only in the church because only the church is the body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, any hope for harmony between men and women and so on is in the church. Who can change the human heart? Politics? Humans? No, only Jesus. So where will harmony be between rich and poor, young, old, between the races, again, in the body of Jesus Christ, in the church? So the next one, next time somebody says to us, listen, we're, we're planning a church for only that specific group, we would say, come, come now, kind person. Our Jesus is much bigger than that. Listen to your Bibles, Colossians 3.11. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, Insider, outsider, uncivilized, uncouth, slave, free. They mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. I love that last line. Everyone is included in Christ. 
those of us who had trouble in, in middle school and in elementary school being included. We, right? We know what that was. You didn't wear this. Your hair wasn't like that. You couldn't do the mile in, you know, six minutes or whatever. You had no skills. You just kind of existed. And then the groups, the hierarchy groups were separated, right? And people, here we go. I was on the bottom tier of the group. In the church, everyone is included in Christ. So Paul is saying, be what you are. Stay put, be what you are. Be the best Christian, blue collar, white collar, homemaker. Be the best Christian you can be where God put you. In other words, you don't need to change your occupation to be a better Christian. Right? You don't need to change your situation to be a better Christian. That's the rule that Paul's laid down in all the churches. God changes people internally first. External atmosphere really doesn't matter. That's the first illustration. The second is that of slavery. Okay? And again, Paul doesn't pull any punches here. Verse 21, you were a slave when you were called. Don't let it trouble you. Although if you gain your freedom, do so. It's the same thing, whatever. Paul's point, again, is plain. Regardless of your external circumstances, it's still necessary and it's still possible to live a Christian life the way God would have you. I mean, don't you want to say, yay, God? You remember the price tag argument that I said in the beginning? Can you imagine trying to live within that framework if you have no money? Holy cow, you and God are like massively separated because you're low on cash. High on cash, buy the stuff, everything great. No cash, low on stuff, everything not so great. I mean, who wants to live like that discontent people do so the context of slavery in Rome is, is like this at that time roughly half the population were slaves some were treated dreadfully others were treated normally uh, most slaves were more skilled more literate and more uh, inclined with education than their free person masters so in both situations the principle is still the same Don't try to change your external circumstances, but let God change you internally. And what does history teach us again and again in the context of slavery? Where Christians are faithful to Jesus Christ and faithful to his word, slavery cannot flourish. It can't flourish. That's a lesson of history. Because only sin can keep us from obeying and serving Christ. Our circumstances cannot. Again, only sin can keep us from obeying and serving Christ. Our circumstances cannot. Because again, we too often blame our circumstances as to why we can't serve the Lord the way we would like or the way we should. Well, we say to ourselves, it's because, of, because I'm here. It's because of this office. It's because of her. It's because of him. It's because of my family. All these external things, if they would just change, then I could be the Christian that I always intended to be. But Paul says, no, no, grow where you're planted. Grow where you're planted because God put you there. So if you were a slave when you were called, don't let it trouble you. Look at verse 22. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. So what Paul is saying there is that the slave is free in Jesus. And actually, whether you're free or not free, you're still, as a Christian, a slave to Jesus. So ultimately the bondage that matters is not bondage to these type of things, it's bondage to sin. And when a person who was enslaved to sin becomes free by Christ, then they become a slave of Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. 
we're enslaved to Jesus. We're enslaved to Jesus. Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Now in former days, people weren't so troubled by that reality of being a slave to Jesus. Hymn writers would say, make me a captive Lord and then I shall be free. Because you'll never understand your Christian existence. You'll never understand your Christian freedom until you know that you're a slave of Jesus Christ. So again, the point is very clear. Ultimately, outward circumstances matter very little, if at all. It's the internal, the relationships with Christ and how he's changing the inside of us that matters. And by and large, much of Christianity in the West is focused where? I mean, you know, where is it focused by and large? On the external. On appearances. Wow, they really like, look like they got it together. Boy, they really look like they got it going on. They have a nice house and they have a nice car and they have a nice marriage and they have a nice family and they just seem like they, and they have a nice body. And that's honest. Boy, I really would like to do some of that. And we wonder why we're in the place we're in. So in verse 23, Paul says, you were bought at a price. Yes, we were. So don't become slaves of men. Now then, this is another illustration that he's giving that the Corinthians would understand. In the ancient world, it was possible for a slave to buy their freedom. And one of the ways they could buy their freedom was to secure money through, believe it or not, an extra job. So the slave would take the money that they had earned from their extra job. They would have to give their master a percentage. (coughs) Excuse me. They would take the rest. They would take it to the temple of their God, whatever God it was. And the slave was gradually um, providing monies to the purchase price of their freedom at the temple. So over the course of time, after enough money was secured, they would take that money and whatever the market value of the day for the slave was, once they accumulated that, they took their master to the temple and the money at that temple was discharged by the priest to the master. The slave then symbolically became the slave of the God and the slave was no longer the responsible uh, slave to his earthly master. A purchase had been made A transaction had taken place. The slave is liberated from the man, but now a slave to God. That is the exact picture that Paul gives and and just he applies Christian terms to us. He knows that they know that they've been bought with not perishable items, silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, 1 Peter 1. And as a result of Christ's blood shed, 2 Peter, excuse me, they're set free from everything. And they, being purchased by Christ, are now enslaved to Christ. And they no longer need to be in bondage at the hands of men. And loved ones, this is, this is now spiritual. It's not literal. Because he's already told them, slave, free, doesn't really matter. Now he's speaking about the spiritual. Therefore, and pay attention because this happens too frequently in God's church. If there are strong-willed individuals in that church... And they're willing to take advantage of pliable, weak souls by dictating to them their ways and their tastes and their convictions and so forth. Paul says, Christian, don't you fall for that trap for a second. We only have one master. 
He's been clear enough, and it's Jesus, and you are a slave to him and not any of them. Now, do we understand that? Because surely we understand peer pressure in any context. We'd be foolish not to believe that. Point number one, the principle that Paul applies. Stay put. Be a Christian where God called you into his kingdom. Grow where he plants you. Number two, the example he gives. Religious social barriers all brought down only by the cross. Only by that great work of God in the gospel in the heart of men and women. The final point then, the life we must live. And I'll be very brief. So here's what we need to know. Our contentment is directly tied to our conversion and to our acceptance of the providence of God in our lives. Our existing conditions of life were divinely planned for the Christian. So much so that Paul can say, a slave in that position can't, don't worry. It will not hinder your Christian experience. You can be content in that situation and still serve Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. The world system is set up for disappointment. Follow its trends, follow its maxims, and you will find eventually complete dissatisfaction so easy to come by. Yeah, you'll get a sugary high. Okay, yes, of course. There is pleasure in sin for a season. But whatever comes up, it's going to have to come down. Don't be in a hurry to change your external circumstances. Restlessness has always been the bent of the evil one. Right? You read that in Luke. You read it in Job. Here and there, everywhere, restlessness. Can't be happy. Can't be happy with the fact that we're here. And I can do this. And I can do this. And right now, at least, I can say, hey, everybody at home, would you like to take a walk? Like a two-mile walk? Can we just do that? And be so, so happy in that. No matter all the other external circumstances. Do you understand what I'm saying? We live in a time and age where you, if you want to flip it, you can flip it. We have a restlessness that hurts. The change that Jesus came to bring was in our hearts. He didn't come to turn over the Roman Empire. If he tried to do that, he made a total hash of it. He gave us an example. I'm going to change people, people by people, individuals. That's how I'm going to do it. That's how I'm going to grow my kingdom. So having come to faith in Jesus Christ, we do not need to be a revolutionary. We don't need to rage against the machine. Probably the best way to do it is go back to your job, stay within your framework, stay within that marriage, stay at your post, and live in such a way that radically demonstrates the great change that Jesus Christ makes. Religious and social barriers, they don't mean anything anymore. Because any man or any woman, 2 Corinthians 5.17, they're a new creation. Which means earthly status or lack of earthly status is absolutely irrelevant. Irrelevant. Racial background, education, beauty, giftedness, whatever is a whatever. It doesn't matter. And as you think this through particularly in our age, that should bring every church to its knees and say, please God, help us to understand this. Help us to live within that framework. People want to change the world. Only Jesus can. How did he do it? Only one way. Proclaim him, serve him, be content in him, and live to the best of you can for his glory just like him.
There's a song that says there's a work for Jesus that only you can do. There is only a work for Jesus that you can do in the place where he's put you by his providential hand. Grow where you're planted. Be content. Last word from Hebrews. Be content with what you have. Why? Because Jesus said, paraphrase, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. That should be good enough. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we give glory to you. We, We just can't thank you enough for these truths because oftentimes in our context we get so confused should we should we reach for more grab for more all that kind of stuff and it, it gets in the way father and here we are now in your presence with your people and it can't get any better than this not on this earth so we thank you for the privileges we thank you for your providence we thank you for your sure and certain truth which grips us and grounds us And keeps us content in the most difficult of circumstances, yes. Because that's your great power and that's your great truth. Thank you, Father, that you work from the inside out. And you're working in everyone who belongs to you. Which I pray is all of us here this morning. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours. Both today and forevermore. Amen.